Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maun, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. 
Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my lord sent. And now, my lord, as surely as the lord your God lives, and as you live, since the lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who intent on harming my lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and for avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 to 12. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill at Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, He sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. 
Now let me pin him to the ground. With one thrust of the spear, I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, The Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Evening everyone. Thanks for reading to us, Steve. We're actually going to be looking at uh, three chapters, chapters 25, 26 and 27 uh, this evening, but we're going to be homing in on the, the part of those readings that was just read to us. So let's pray, shall we, for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you that these things are written down for our benefit as we read these stories, as we watch you in action through your people in this world, we might learn things about you and that we might learn things about ourselves. And so, Lord, please, as we come to your word of truth now, would you push your truth deep down into our hearts, Lord, in such a way that it impacts our lives, that we would serve you this week in light of what we learn this evening. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been uh, with us for any of our series in 1 Samuel, or much of it, or all of it, um, you'll be aware that there's three main characters in the book of 1 Samuel. There's Samuel himself, uh, the prophet, um, God's mouthpiece to the people. There's Saul, the current king, anointed by Samuel in chapter 9 and rejected by God in chapter 15. And then there's David, the king-to-be, or the king in waiting. I want us just to start by flicking back to chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. It's on the screen there for you as well, because these couple of verses really help us to understand the flow of 1 Samuel, where we've come from and the direction in which we're heading. Have a look at verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And then verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Do you see what's happening? The spirit of the Lord comes upon David. And at the same time, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. There is a transfer of power going on here. And from this moment in chapter 16, we see Saul slide out of the picture while David rises to prominence. It's not actually until chapter, until 2 Samuel chapter 5 when David is crowned king of Israel. But that is the trajectory. That is where we're heading in the book of 1 Samuel. And in the section before us this evening, David is the main character in view. And as we watch this king to be, this king in waiting, in action, we see in him this incredible mixture of faithfulness and folly. You see, scripture itself refers to David, doesn't it, as a man after God's own heart. And at times, David's life and his leadership and his character are exemplary. 
a man of faith. But as you watch him in action, you see this faithfulness mixed with an incredible capacity to sin, to wander into folly. And we don't have to wait till 2 Samuel chapter 11 and David's famous adultery with Bathsheba, his subsequent murder of Uriah to cover his guilt and shame. It's here before us today in these few chapters, David's faithfulness and his folly. And you see, in that sense, David is like every other leader in the history of the church, is he not? Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, every leader, indeed every servant and follower of the Lord Jesus, is this strange mix, if you like, of both faithfulness and folly. And that includes the leaders and the people at Long Crendon. And so as we come to these chapters this evening, our prayer must be that we learn lessons from both David's faithfulness and from his folly. I've called the first chapters, three chapters and three sections. The first chapter I've called Folly Prevented. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 2 of chapter 25, where we're introduced to this contrasting couple. First of all, look in verse 2. We meet a certain man in Maon who had property there in Carmel and was very wealthy. And we go on to learn about his considerable wealth. And you see, it's no mistake that we learn about this guy's possessions before we learn his name. Because here is a man who is defined by his own greed. As we see in verse 3, he is surly and mean, literally hard and nasty in his dealings. People are collateral because greed is his God. And when we are introduced to his name in verse 3, it's actually pretty revealing his name we learn was Nabal and Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool it's a reality that Nabal's own wife testifies look in in verse 25 later in the story when she converses with David this is what she says about her own husband verse 25 please pay no attention my lord to that wicked man Nabal He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. It's exactly the same word that's used in that very familiar psalm, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, literally the Nabal in Hebrew. The Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. You see, when we hear foolishness today, we we just equate it with silliness. If someone's a fool, they do something a little bit silly. But to be a fool, biblically, is a lot more severe. To be a fool is to live without regard for God. It is to say in your heart, there is no God. And then for your life to follow suit. Foolishness isn't silliness. It's Godlessness. And that's exactly what Nabal was. But in contrast, when we see his wife, Abigail, she is introduced by name first, look in verse 3. And we learn that she's an intelligent and beautiful woman. And as we walk on through this story, we will see that she is a, a discerning and godly lady. So there's the introductions. And then when we come to verse 4, the story really begins... And I've called this part of the story, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. David wants a favour. Have a look down at verse 4. 
While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them. And the whole time they were with us at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, says David. As he's being pursued by Saul, he's in the area near Carmel where Nabal's sheep are. And him and his men actually act as these voluntary protectors of the flock. They end up looking after Nabal's possessions and wealth. And David says, will you now return the favor? Me and my men are in need. I scratch your back. Will you scratch mine? And in verse 10, look, we get the answer. Nabal says, no chance. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Once again, Nabal's greed dictates and he is unwilling to return the favor. And David's solution to Nabal's action is pretty dramatic, isn't it, in verse 13? David's solution, look, is to swing the sword. Look at what he says. David said to his men, each of you strap on your swords. They did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David, moved by a hit to his own pride, heads off to wipe out Nabal and everyone associated with him. It's pretty bleak. But fortunately, David, as we learn in this section, has a perceptive servant and a resourceful wife because the servant is there listening to what is going on, to this dialogue. And this servant runs back to Abigail. And Abigail acts quickly. In verse 14, you see that she packs this this big hamper of food. And she runs off to meet David, to intercept David. David, sword in hand, is on his way to Nabal's land to wipe out everything. And coming in the other direction is Abigail, loaded with a gift for David. And she runs to meet David and intercept him at this point of folly. And when she gets there, she jumps off a donkey in verse 23. And you see this this stance, this approach of humility before David. And then in verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. And there comes the dialogue between Abigail and David. And the key to the chapter, I think, is found, it gets repeated a few times, but look down at verse 30 and 31. Abigail speaking to David, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, 
and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. That phrase there, that that staggering burden, literally means a stumbling block to the heart. This wonderful God-given gracious intervention God sends Abigail to intervene, and Abigail's actions prevent a significant stumbling block in the heart to this future king of Israel. And David himself acknowledges this intervention, doesn't he? Have a look down at verse 32. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgments and for keeping me from bloodshed this day, and from avenging myself with my own hands. Through Abigail's humble intervention, David's folly has been prevented. You see, there's a lot going on in chapter 25. There's a lot that could be said. But in and amongst that, I think there's a couple of very clear applications for us this evening. And the first one is this. The Lord rescues his servants from their own folly. You see it here. Sometimes it's recognized. Sometimes it's appreciated as it was in the life of David. Sometimes we're totally oblivious to it. We don't even recognize these God-given gracious interventions that prevent his people from wandering into folly. But whether we recognize it or not, there is a sovereign God who loves his people and watches over his people and intervenes through the lives of other people to stop us wandering headlong into folly. And he does it, secondly, through the faithfulness of others. Do you see that in the life of Abigail? Abigail acts like this big stop sign, doesn't she? As she heads out on her donkey to intervene and to meet David... She gets off her donkey and humbly she approaches him. She says, David, please do not pursue this wander into folly. With gentleness, with humility, with grace, she says, David, by the grace of God, please don't go there. Don't pursue this course of action that you set before yourself. And so as we think about the challenges for us this evening... They're probably twofold. Will you be an Abigail to others? As we wander through life with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see each other prone to sin, prone to wander into folly as we will do, because our hearts are broken, will we graciously act to intervene? Will we be an Abigail to others and and pull each other up and love each other and care for each other enough to say, what are you doing? Will you stop? Will you think, will you pray, and will you turn around and not wander into that folly that is before you? It is our job, and it is our joy as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to look after each other in that way, to be an Abigail to others. But also, will you listen like David? Because you see, the process works both ways, doesn't it? There'll be many times that I'm the one, you're the one wandering into folly. And God graciously puts somebody in your path who loves you enough to point something out in your life and say, Well, see, the way you're speaking, 
Your behavior, your conduct, the, the trajectory of your life. It's not right, brother. Will I then, will you then have enough humility like David to listen to these God-given interventions through his people and to act? Or will we pursue our folly? Chapter 25 is about folly prevented. Chapter 26 I've called faithfulness pursued. Have a look down at verse 1, chapter 26. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? Not for the first time in this narrative, the, the Ziphites act as Saul's spies and they grass on David, basically. They make known the location of David to Saul. And so after a brief respite in chapter 25, the hunt is back on. The chase is back on. Once again, Saul is hounding David and he's after his life. But as we see in verse 3, David, once again, is a step ahead of the game. He knows that Saul is on his case. And thus begins the most audacious mission imaginable. Talk about mission impossible. This is another level altogether. Have a look down at verse 5 and 6 and try and put yourself in the place of David and Abishai. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army camped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Job's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. Abishai signs up for what he thinks is going to be a two-man hit squad to take out King Saul. But as we read on, we'll see that's not the sort of mission that David had in mind. And so you can picture the scene, it's the middle of the night and David and Abishai are picking their way through these sleeping bodies right to the heart of the camp, the central tent where Saul was sleeping, surrounded by his private bodyguards. They make their way through the camp until they're in the tent, standing over the sleeping body of Saul, hearts beating maybe a little bit quickly. Breath almost visible in the air. And as they stood there over the body of the sleeping king, Abishai whispers to David in verse 8, this is the moment, let's finish it. With one thrust of my spear, I will pin him to the ground and it will all be over. But David says in verse 9, no. Today, sorry, but David said, don't destroy him, verse 9. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head, and let's go. Abishai must have left scratching his head, right? He's been signed up for this most audacious mission. He's walked right into the heart of the people that want them dead. Opportunities before him. And they walk out with a water jug and a spear. What's the point? What then was the point of this mission? 
where you see the spear makes the point. The word spear actually comes up 31 times in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, almost as many times in the rest of scripture put together. And the spear is a symbol of power. It is always beside King Saul. Wherever he goes, he has his spear there. So when David takes the spear, do you see what's happening? Saul has been disarmed. His power has gone. His kingship is about to be transferred into the hands of another into the hands of David. And 3,000 troops and a private bodyguard cannot stop it happening. Why, verse 12? Because this is the Lord's plan. And he is in charge. No one even saw it or knew about it. Nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. It was a sign for Saul which he seems to recognize in verse 25. It was certainly a sign for David, who after many years on the run, needed that assurance from God, a reminder of the promise that the kingship would be transferred to him. But it's also a sign for us today, as we look back on these events, that God's good purposes cannot be stopped. And you see, we see this principle again and again through Scripture That God's plan and purpose cannot be thwarted by anybody. When we come to the New Testament, we see this perfectly lived out in the life and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. Have a look at Acts 2.23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. When the forces of evil combined to kill God's son. In reality, all they were doing were furthering the purposes of God. His plan to restore and reconcile sinful people to himself through the death of his own son on the cross. You see, however strong the opposition, God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's king will be enthroned. David was going to take the throne. But obviously it's a pointer forward to the one true great king, the Lord Jesus, who did die for sin and no one could stop it, who rose again and no one could stop it, who ascended into heaven and no one could stop it and will return to judge the living and the dead and nobody can stop it. Because God's good purposes for his people cannot be stopped. Folly is prevented by a sovereign God and faithfulness is pursued by a sovereign God. And lastly, as we wrap things up in chapter 27, folly perpetrated, question mark, I've put. Let me sketch out very quickly what happens in this chapter, because I know we didn't have it read to us. And then I'll make a few comments to bring things to a close this evening. In verse 1, David flees again for fear of his life. But we see that of all places he flees to, he flees to Gath, which is where the king of the Philistines come from. Israel's sworn enemies. Think back just ten chapters to David and Goliath, Israel facing up against the Philistines. Now David on the run, where has he run to? He's run to the heartland of the Philistines, he's run to Gath where the king of the Philistines lives because he knows it's the one place that Saul will not pursue him. May seem like a strange plan, 
But it works in verse 4. Saul does stop pursuing David. David and his army then get their own territory and and town called Ziglag in verse 6. And from there they go on these raids to surrounding areas. Now here's the subtle bit of chapter 27. David pretends that he's raiding his own people in Judah to maintain favor with the Philistines. He's pretending he's wiping out some of the Israelites. But actually, we learn in verse 8 and 9 that he's raiding other nomadic tribes and wiping them out in order to protect his own back so word doesn't get back to the king of the Philistines. So here's my question, and it's why I put a question mark after perpetrated there. Was David being faithful or foolish? Was this a wise move? Was this a godly move? Or was this a morally unsound thing that David was doing here? Dare Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this chapter, calls this a godless text. Not because God's not in it, but because we get no verdict from God, no commentary from God on David's actions. Were they right or were they wrong? Instead, we need to look at the clues within the chapter to work out what we think of David's actions. And I think my conclusions from what I've read would be that the text is both sympathetic to David, but also critical of David's actions. You see, I think it's pretty easy to have sympathy with David. He's been pursued. He's been on the run for four years. He just wants a break. He's got 600 men and their families to look after. And he goes to find that rest with the Philistines in the one place where he knows Saul won't pursue him. But at the same time, I think overall this chapter is critical of David and what he does here in chapter 27. And I think that for probably two reasons. Firstly, David looks the Philistines for security rather than the Lord. You see, with Saul's power gone, he's just had the reminder in chapter 26, he should have stayed. But instead of fleeing to God, where does he flee to? He flees to Gath. (laughs) And you know what? We do the same all the time, don't we? When trouble hits, when we feel broken and pursued and under weight in life, we go here, there and everywhere before going to the Lord of the universe. We go to the council of others. We we go to all sorts of places rather than fleeing to the Lord and collapsing our confidence into the sovereign God who has just revealed himself in chapter 26. But secondly, I've put as well, David seems to be motivated by self-preservation rather than trust in the Lord's provision. Have a look at verse 11. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. This was a practice that lasted nearly a year and a half and a practice that seems to be without biblical warrant. But you see, whatever you make of chapter 27, as you take that away and work that through for yourself, what you cannot escape in these three chapters as a whole are two resounding truths. Firstly, it's where we began this evening. All of God's leaders and servants, apart from Christ, are a mixture of folly and faithfulness. And it's as true of us as it was of David. Yet, God is sovereign. 
And he will accomplish his good purposes. He will bring his kingdom to bear through his king, the Lord Jesus. And he will do it through the faithfulness of his people, despite the folly of his people. And he will do it for the glory of his name. Amen. Let me read to you from Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12 words of David, and then we'll, we'll pray together. David says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Father in heaven, as we consider your word this evening, indeed as we consider our own hearts, we recognize that our hearts are divided, that our loyalties are mixed. Lord, one moment we we trust you and we follow you faithfully, and the next minute with our life and with our words we deny you and we wander into folly. Lord Jesus, we are sorry that our hearts are pulled in so many different directions. And so we stop this evening, Lord Jesus, to thank you for your wonderful work on the cross on our behalf. Thank you that you died for people like us with divided hearts. Thank you that your death was sufficient to cover all our sins. We praise you for the work of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for revealing to us our need for a saviour and the wonderful work of that saviour. And Father, thank you for the privilege of being in a, a family of believers where we genuinely love each other and we desire for each other to walk in righteousness and to live a life of faith. Father, help us be when we need to be an Abigail to others, help us to be people that genuinely love and intervene graciously in other people's lives, that we might be those people who walk in ways that are pleasing to you. Father, thank you that your good purposes can never be thwarted or stopped. Just as you promised David the kingship, so you promise that one day the Lord Jesus will return as the the risen ruling king of all things and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Thank you, Lord, that whatever the opposition that comes your way, nobody can stop your good purposes being accomplished. We thank you that we follow a God who is sovereign, who is in charge of this world and a God who loves and cares for his people immensely. Father, please help us to live this week, not with divided hearts, but with hearts that are fully centered upon the Lord Jesus, lives that are given in service to him and to him alone. And we pray these things for your name's sake. Amen. Well, let me read verse 11 and 12 again, and may this be our prayer as we leave here this evening. Teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever.
Amen.